0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Stories on This Week in FCPA, episode 233 for the week ending December 18, 2020. The Vaccine is Here edition include the good, bad, and the missing. Casson lists his three top stories in 2020 on the FCPA blog. Are you ready for the EU whistleblower directive? Cedric Dunbar considers also in the FCPA blog using data analytics for the board and still satisfying the regulators. Six CCOs opine in compliance week. Yonason Goldson asks, what are the seven principles of ethical leadership in CCI? Leadership failures around sexual harassment at Fort Hood, Matt Kelly reports in radical compliance. Matt and Tom take a gut-wrenching deep dive into the topic with special guest Diane St. Ives, who relates her own experiences from being sexually harassed some 40 years ago at Fort Hood. The SEC and SARs, Thomas Gorman in the SEC enforcement blog. Congress approves a new AML law. Jack Hagel in the WSJ Risk and Compliance Journal. Ephemeral messaging. Lawyers from Debevoise and Plimpton. On this month in the Compliance Life, we have episode three of our four-part series with Kim Yapchai on the Wirecard saga. This week's episode includes who watches the watchers. Please note, Jay and I will be off next week for Christmas Day, and we will have a special end-of-year edition the following week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Voice of Compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA. Episode 233 for the week ending December 18th, 2020, The Vaccine is Here edition. As Joe Biden is formally elected president by the Electoral College and COVID-19 vaccine arrives in spite of the foobars of the Trump administration, Tom and Jay are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our collective eye. Uh, What say ye, Jay? Um,
0: I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but I believe Joe Biden was elected president-elect.
1: Have you heard something about this? We don't get that kind of news in Texas.
0: All right. Why don't we jump into the weekly happenings now?
1: Well, uh, Jay, one of the traditions in the FCPA blogosphere world is to review the top stories of the past year and Dick Casson usually leads with a pre-Christmas role, and he did so again this year with his three top stories of 2020, uh, which he subtitled The Good, the Bad, and the Missing. The Good was an FCPA record-smashing enforcement year as the DOJ and and SEC brought FCPA enforcement actions Against twelve companies with total fines and penalties of six point four billion. Yeah, that's B with the B word. Uh, for comparison, twenty nineteen and twenty eighteen were two point nine and one point eight billion each. Um, number two, the bad Goldman Sachs kicked compliance to the curb. Uh, Dick's interpretation was that the compliance program was eviscerated by. Um, upper management at Goldman, and that's what led to the uh, catastrophic compliance failures. And finally, the missing, and typically we don't see that topic, but Dick thinks that uh, FCPA enforcement against uh, Chinese companies um, is is really at a, a low nadir. And of the um, 64 actions, some happened in China, but there were no Chinese parent companies appearing as FCPA defendants. The shorter answer is they're beyond the reach of the U.S. law, um, which uh, makes it difficult to uh, fully police the FCPA. So uh, he did acknowledge that there were some other stories um, uh, in 2019, something called a Rovid and a Rona but But uh, he didn't find those to make his top
0: three. All right. Also coming to us from the FCPA blog. How to prepare for the EU Whistleblowing Protection Directive. This comes to us by Cedric or Cedric Dubar. Uh, the EU Whistleblower Protection Directive sets out minimum standards for how organizations should handle whistleblowers, reports, respond to the reports, and protect whistleblowers. Member states are obliged to adopt the directive into their national legislation by December 17th of 2021, which is right around the corner. By creating an ombuds function, the scope of the directive may appropriately tackle one of the key principles in the directive. If structured properly within an organization, the ombuds function can ensure that reports are followed by competent personnel and that they maintain a significant level of independence and neutrality. The ombuds function can provide many other advantages to an organization, including instilling more trust into the system, allowing better management of whistleblower reports, providing better information to management and the board, and advising organizations on how to improve its policies, procedures, systems, and internal governance. When creating an ombuds function, an organization must be careful in establishing the governance and operation of the function. In particular, the ombuds function must be independent and neutral in practice. Anyone working for the office must be free of any conflict of interest. You must have adequate authority. The ombuds function must have full support from senior management, ensure confidentiality and non-retaliation, and have the necessary competence and resources available to perform its duties. By following these principles ahead of time, hopefully, companies will be able to comply by the deadline of December seventeenth, twenty twenty-one.
1: Jay, uh, next up, we had an article in uh, Compliance Week where there was an interview with six senior compliance practitioners who shared uh, big picture thoughts on how their companies are using data in the context of regulators' increased regulators' increased expectations and. Uh, what the board's expectations are at their companies. And it's a variety of practitioners, both in uh, commercial corporations, university setting, financial institutions, healthcare, care, uh, uh, and the energy space. And uh, what it really showed, Jay, is that many companies are moving data analytics uh, to a more central place in their compliance programs. They are using the data analytics to identify potential failures in the implementation of internal controls and adopt, identifying issues that are really outlier outliers that would raise red flags uh, to, to pinpoint more precisely what efforts are needed to uh, engage in further investigation. And the, um, I think the, the, the part around the regular expectation is fairly well known now, particularly with the um, release of the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs And that companies, most notably compliance officers, uh, have to uh, have access to data and that data analytics will be increasingly important should a company be in a position where it needs to explain or defend its compliance program. So uh, a really confirmation of, I think, what a lot of people thought. And uh, certainly uh, data analytics will be more at the forefront as we move into 2021 and beyond.
0: Next up, we have a story from Corporate Compliance Insights. Good ethics is good business. Jonas and Goldson discusses seven principles of leading ethically, explores the problem with legislating ethics, and offers guidance on applying these principles to our own actions and behaviors. After identifying the principles of ethics, we have an ethical imperative to apply these principles to our attitudes and behaviors. The application of ethical action steps looks like this. Number one, evaluate informational integrity. Protect against rational ignorance by seeking out all relevant information, both supporting and opposing any position. Two, evaluate emotional bias. Protect against groupthink by engaging in civil discourse. Evaluate logical consistency. Articulate your opinions so those who have not already bought into them can understand them. Four, cultivate empathy through understanding. Engage ideological adversaries on a personal basis. Translate awareness into action. Monitor your own responses, your language, and style of speech your own behavior, and ethical discipline. Number six, recognize that acting ethically is in your own best interest. Act in the way you would like others to act towards you. And number seven, learn from a mentor. Seek outside models of virtue in articles, books, and interviews, or videos, but especially face-to-face. There is no substitute for human interaction with people of quality. So stop looking for shortcuts, loopholes, and justifications to circumvent the spirit of the law. Seek out the humanity in those with whom you disagree. Demand the same intellectual integrity from yourself that you demand from others. And test your own fair-mindedness and moral objectivity. Don't try to justify preconceptions. Try to discover the truth.
1: Matt Kelly wrote about leadership lesson uh, from the failures of Fort Hood around sexual harassment, and sexual attacks by enlisted men against uh, women, uh, uh, U.S. Army uh, uh, members. And he looked at it uh, really as a failure at, at the top, failures at leadership lessons, uh, le- leadership because uh, it was based upon the report recently issued on um, investigation of the culture at Fort Hood Driven by the murder of specialist Vanessa Gion, Gillian, I should say. And the uh, report found there was uh, no executive support for the uh, uh, sexual harassment program uh, called SHARP. And that while senior officers supported the idea of fewer sexual assaults, um, they really, it was just a check the box exercise. And that the execution, when it came to middle management, colonels, majors, and captains really, uh, were not uh, uh, did not follow through. Uh, he gave some, some pretty damning statistics. Uh, 500 uh, females interviewed, 32% said they would not be comfortable reporting a sexual assault through the program. Half the soldiers weren't confident their commanders would take the report seriously. 36 had witnessed or experienced retaliation for reporting, and 70% said leadership at Fort Hood had not done a sufficient job. A pretty damning report, and Matt detailed those we did a podcast on that where we had our first special guest on the podcast compliance into the weeds. And our guest was a good friend of mine, a lawyer in Houston named Diane St. Ives. Diane's a retired, uh, us army officer. And she had actually served at Fort hood, uh, in the late seventies and early nineties. She was a first class of women in the integrated services. There used to be a women's army corps separate and apart from the men's. And, um, she had uh, actually experienced a sexual, attempted a sexual assault while she was an enlisted man, in uh, at Fort Hood, and she talked about that. And, and frankly, it was gut wrenching. This is forty one years later, and she could still talk about how he smelled and the sounds that he made. And, um, and Diane is is very proud of her service, uh, and she talked about the problems. Uh, that she had in 1979, which was she was denied promotion because she reported the assault. And they're the same problems today. And she really thinks, you know, obviously we can do better and we have to do better. But she has really come around to thinking that uh, it's so bad that she she is almost in favor of a segregated army again uh, from gender. So uh, it was uh, a really interesting uh, guest to have have her personal experience. She's thought a lot about this and the report really triggered her thinking about the solution uh, even more. I was really surprised to hear her say that uh, she thought the sexes needed to be segregated. So um took a listen to that. Uh, like I said, it was gut-wrenching for me. I'm a good friend of Diane, so I knew a little bit about her story, but I didn't know the, the full story. So uh, interesting stuff from the U.S. Army and uh, leadership failures, that apply uh, in a compliance program as well.
0: Next up, we have a story from uh, Thomas Gorman. Uh, this comes to us from his SEC blog, and it's entitled The SEC and SARS. The commission periodically has filed enforcement actions against broker-dealers for failing to file SARS, which are suspicious activity reports, typically centered on the failure to file reports regarding micro-cap issuers. The question of a broker-dealer compliance with SARs and the Commission's authority under the Exchange Act section and rule typically cited by the agency was raised in a recently decided action by the Second Circuit course, Court. Rather, The case, Alpine, a registered broker-dealer, was named as a defendant in an enforcement action by the Commission. The complaint alleged that the firm which specializes in microcap securities had failed over a period of time to properly file thousands of SARS. The defendant responded by claiming that the Commission did not have the authority to enforce what our Bank Secrecy Act and FinCEN regulations. Here's the decision. The court began with a brief review of statutory authority for SARS. SARS, rather, and it traces its back to the Foreign Transactions Reporting Act of 1970, known as the Bank Syncrasy Act, and which was amended by the Patriot Act in 2001. First, the court quickly concluded that the commission had the authority to initiate this action. Second, the fact that Rule 17A-8 requires compliance with the bank secrecy requirements does not change the conclusion of the circuit court. The term termination of the agency and the action is tied to an express delegation by Congress of authority to determine which reports from covered entities, including broker-dealers, are necessary and appropriate. The fact that Congress directed Treasury to regulate record-keeping requirement by broker-dealers does not mean that the Commission is precluded from acting in an area as a defendant. So here's the comment. In Chevron, the Supreme Court's seminal decision on rule writing makes it clear that if Congress delegates authority to an agency to write rules, the provisions written must be within the ambit of authority granted. That does not mean that incorporating yet-to-be-written rules by FinCEN in the future are within the text of the Exchange Act writing, uh, rule writing authority. Finally, just how an Exchange Act rule incorporating uh, to be written in the future rules authored by FinCEN complies with the APA is unclear. To be sure, each version of the Exchange Act rule was subject subjected to the notice and comment required. While the process adopted essentially a shortcut, it may be in, it may be efficient and may even yield desirable results. But in the end, it's not cor- in accord with the statutes.
1: We have a new AML law that's been passed by Congress. I think we've touched on this in earlier podcasts, but we actually have it now enacted. And uh, Jack Hagel, our good colleague over at the uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, reports that Congress has approved the new anti-money laundering measure. It reforms and adds to the uh, Bank Secrecy Act that you just mentioned. It was part of the uh, uh, National Defense Authorization Bill. And it changed the rules around beneficial ownership, which is something that uh, many in the compliance community and, indeed, the enforcement community have been lobbying for for some time. We're a little bit embarrassed to say the ABA had um, opposed this up until this year. But the, um, the bill uh, requires uh, certain specific information around uh, owners of corporations. The Treasury Department's got a year to write the regulations so, we don't know specifically what's going to be required, but it probably will be something along the lines of name, birth date, address, government issued identification number, whether it be a driver's license or a passport for every beneficial owner. Existing companies would have two years to comply and they would have to update the information when there's a change. So, hopefully, this will help the fight against uh, money laundering and uh, terrorism, as well as for financial institutions, but also for commercial corporations moving forward as well. So we uh, dip back
0: into the SEC again for our last story. Uh, this comes to us from some attorneys at Debe Voice and Plimpton on their data blog, and it's entitled, The SEC Enforcement Highlights the Risk of Not Preserving Text Chat Messages. And many companies' employers are increasingly using non-business communication apps such as WhatsApp, WeChat, and others for business related communication. This trend has likely accelerated in the COVID era as work from home arrangements blur traditional lines between business and personal time. In September of this year, the SEC reached a settlement with Jones Trading, a registered broker dealer, for its failure to maintain business related text messages. Broker-dealers are subject to rigorous regulatory requirements under the Exchange Act and FINRA rules to maintain and surveil business-related communications. In connection with an enforcement investigation unrelated to the firm, the SEC sought records from the firm and found references to text messages discussed in the firm's business. The Jones Trading Enforcement is based on the violation of the requirement for broker-dealers to retain business-related records. In general, there are several compelling reasons for companies to limit business-related communications to company systems. For security, companies lack control over cybersecurity and privacy of employees' personal apps. In terms of discovery, companies' servers generally do not capture employees' communications sent or received through personal apps. And in terms of monitoring required regulatory record keeping, to the extent that a company is subject to regulatory record keeping requirements or monitors business communications for other compliance, regulatory or cybersecurity purposes, that this monitoring process is unable to review communications on personal apps. So for these reasons, many companies simply just prohibit the use of personal apps for business communications. Business records sources disposable data. These policies often distinguish between records, which must be preserved, from disposable data. Then there's another uh, classification of primary versus secondary communication. These policies define primary communication tools as those that can automatically preserve documents and secondary communication tools, voicemail, chats, instant that don't. And finally, business records and primary communications. Having defined business records and primary communication tools, the policies then provide that employees should generally use only primary communication tools. Some company policies also include a requirement that once the business record is transferred to a primary communication tool, the employees should consult with the legal department about deleting the document from the app. The precise scope and wording of a company's messaging policy will depend on several factors and will implicate a variety of legal, HR, business, IT, and reputational considerations. But tailoring policies to match the behavior of employees, the applications that they use, and the expectations of the regulators can reduce much of the regulatory risk. It can also reduce conflicts with employees when their devices have to be searched for company-related communications.
1: Okay, we had um, moving to uh, some podcasts I wanted to highlight, uh, a couple. One is uh, episode three of a four-part series with Kim uh, Yap-Chai. She's now the Chief Counsel, Environmental, Social, and Governance at Teneco, Chief uh, uh, Compliance Officer as well. In today's, uh, this week's rather third episode, she talks about moving into the CCO chair and what were some of the things she wanted to do um when she moved into that chair that was uh, at Whirlpool and we talk about what's it like to work for one of the US's most iconic consumer brands and what sort of pressure does that put on you to get it right because uh if if you've been around a 100 years you better be around another 100 years so a uh, great interview with Kim it's a great series i hope you'll check it out and then in uh episode 14 of the Wirecard saga with your colleague uh Ryder Gordon uh our uh, topic this week was who watches the watchers. As always, uh, Mikhail did a great job. And if you're into wire card, if you're into fraud, if you're into uh, nefariousness at the very highest level uh, with an English accent, this is the podcast for you.
0: What is happening on 31 days to a better compliance program, Tom?
1: Jay, on 31 Days, we continue the month of December in training and communications. On Monday, we took a look at communications through persuasion. Tuesday, multiplying the influence of compliance. Wednesday, communicating across cultural boundaries. Thursday was asking questions to boost your compliance program. And on Friday, we took a look at Twitter and 360 degrees of communication. Um, This podcast has its own iTunes channel. These uh, podcasts are relatively short, so you can line them up and listen to them. And uh, check it out. Uh, I know you will uh, get something out of it. We've got a big announcement coming in uh, January around the podcast series. So stay tuned for some big news. Um,
0: And I know you had one other podcast that you wanted to point out. Can you tell our folks about what you and Megan Doherty are talking about?
1: Right, Megan Doherty is uh, a crazy Canadian, um, Star Trek uber fan. Uh, Most interestingly, though of um, uh, later series, which um, weren't my favorite. But uh, nevertheless, she's a huge six of nine fan, so how can you go wrong? She's also the co-founder of One Stone Creative, which uh, does a lot of uh, podcast production work. And she put together just a fabulous report, she and her team, around the state of business podcasting 2020. And uh, we, I told her, well, we've got to do a webinar on it, so we did. And uh, we posted that webinar as a podcast this week. uh, I linked to the the full recording. Also, if you go to her site, you can uh, request a download of the full report. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in podcasting to do so. They had a lot of information that Megan was able to call, which frankly surprised me about podcasting. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast in 2021, you'd like to start a podcast Give me a shout. I'd love for you to come on the Compliance Podcast Network. Megan can help get you started with uh, she and her team. So uh, check it all out.
0: So on that uh, line, if you need to contact Tom, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, just like it sounds. And if you need to reach me, Mr. Monitor, I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So um, we are very hopeful and excited that the vaccine has arrived, and we hope that it is uh, swiftly moved out among those populations who are at risk, and we can start uh, seeing some relief. Uh, Right now, we are under lockdown in Los Angeles. What's it like in Houston, Tom?
1: So we're uh, supposed to be uh, being very careful. The governor will not let the county judge lock us down. But we're being as safe as we can here in uh, prestigious West Harris County in the uh, hamlet of Cyprus.
0: All right. Well, we hope that uh, everyone who's listening to us is safe and well and healthy. So we'd like to tell you, um, Tom and I, we're going to get together with you uh, the week of the 31st. And we're just going to take a look at the top five stories that caught our eye in 2020. So um, on behalf of Tom Fox, who's not only the compliance evangelist, but he's the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 233, for the week ending December 18th, 2020, The Vaccine is Here edition. Uh, We hope you're all safe and well, and we look forward to speaking to you in a week or so. Thanks.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at TFoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you again.